This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey there, this is Mark Tui. It is a pleasure to be with you once again on this program. I'll be with you today, tomorrow, and Thursday, I think. And in between, I teach. I do a university course or courses up at the University of Guelph Humber. So that keeps me busy Wednesdays and Fridays. But Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, I'm all yours. And uh, thankful for it. Thanks for listening in. You can text at me throughout the program at 71010. We'll open the phone lines now and then at one 855 Three ten ten, but not yet. Uh, I want to start off with uh, the breaking news in Ontario. As expected, uh, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, addressed the province this morning and uh, told us pretty much exactly what we expected he would tell us. Uh, he started by talking about the crush of patients filling up Ontario Children's Hospitals and how we need to step up to protect our kids. Then he very, very, very strongly urged the public to voluntarily wear masks in some places at some times to protect uh, some people. We've been moving in an incremental way. Two weeks ago, I spoke to you about the highest risk individuals, a call to get vaccinated uh, and a call to mask up. Uh, today, it's mask up to protect our children who are the most at risk to being hospitalized now. Uh, and we do have tools at our disposal that can work. And I'm calling on all families uh, all in all social settings as we go into a very social time of year to please, please, please uh, be careful around our most vulnerable citizens. That's Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, strongly recommending that uh, some of us somewhere sometimes wear masks. Not mandating, but strongly recommending. At one point, he said kids as young as two years old should wear masks, and kids and others in schools, oh, and people in hospitals, oh, and people with compromised immune systems or respiratory systems, or people who are around them, and parents at home with infants uh, indoors. I'm a mom to, let's say, a toddler, and I wake up with the sniffles. You're saying I should be masking at home? I'm sorry, but you should. Um, you should be doing good hand hygiene, cleaning surfaces, masking as best you can to decrease the risk to that child. I am glad that he did not call for a mask mandate. But his message was, and I think I can say that I'm being charitable here, unclear. What was clear is that it isn't a mask. Just a strong recommendation so far. If you took away from his uh, conversation, his press conference, and you know exactly what to do, text me at 71010. If you're a little bit confused about what the rules are, well, they're not rules, but the recommendations are, also text me at 71010. Let me know. Uh, here is my prediction. This was not a mandate, but what will happen next in Ontario is this. The members of school boards and boards of health across Ontario will take it upon themselves to mandate masks. How could they not? They're politicians, not scientists, not doctors, even those on boards of health. The few of them that have medical backgrounds or science backgrounds, they weren't appointed as doctors or scientists. They weren't appointed for their expertise. They were elected or appointed because, frankly, they want to be politicians. The henny pennies who voted for them will demand that they take action. By the end of the week, my prediction is Ontario will be a patchwork quilt of different mask mandates, regulations, and guidelines imposed by well-meaning petty tyrants with little or no expertise in anything. 
Mask mandates in schools will, of course, inevitably require lunchroom policies in schools because kids can't eat with their masks on. So some boards will impose social distancing guidelines for lunchrooms to keep the kids apart when they take their masks off. Some boards will ban talking and laughing again, which they did during the COVID pandemic at lunchtimes. They did it before, they'll do it again. We know this, we've seen this. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Many kids will benefit from masking. Many kids will be harmed. How many? I don't know. I hope Dr. Moore knows, but he won't say, never has. We know masking has mitigated the spread of COVID-19 in school districts in the USA. Canada is likely the same. So there's clearly a benefit. We also know many young kids failed to learn communication skills in classroom lessons while they and their teachers were masked. And learning social and communication skills are primary objectives of education. So we know there's clearly a harm. What we don't know is how many more kids will benefit then we'll be harmed. We should know that. And at no point during the past three years of COVID-19 has any political, medical, or public health leader even admitted that there is some harm to the public health measures that they impose. Look, I'm not a doctor, but I have done crisis and risk management around the world for 40 years. On day one and every day since, I learned that there are no zero risk options ever. Every measure intended to manage any risk always carries its own risk. Putting water on a burning house causes enormous water damage to the building, sometimes more than the fire. But on balance, the damage from fire and the threat to other structures outweighs the damage from water. It's a risk versus risk assessment, and the water in that case makes sense. I'm willing to believe the potential harm to kids from masking is less than the potential harm from infection. But no one in authority has ever said that. No one has even admitted or hinted that there is any risk to the mitigation measures that they've imposed, and there always is. This damages their credibility. It opens the door to speculation, which creates a fertile valley for wild conspiracy theories. Not talking about the risk of the mitigation measures is unprofessional. It's stupid and it undermines the goal of risk management. Look, we've been at this for three years now, a thousand days, as Dr. Moore said this morning. We should be better at it than this. We should be better at communicating risk. That we are not better, it should frankly be a fireable offense. We should also not need masks by now. If we wanted to, we could have built entire hospitals in three years. We certainly could have created new intensive care units and expanded emergency rooms. We could have trained thousands of medical professionals to staff those ERs and ICUs. We could have taken nurses and doctors and upgraded their skills to work in them. We could have backfilled their previous positions with others with slightly lesser training. We could have trained thousands of medics and paramedics to staff hospitals. The military trains medics in weeks and months, not years. Those medics are the backbone of a world-class trauma system where MDs and nurses are few and far between. We could have done something similar for hospitals. It would have required some innovative thinking and a willingness to change, open-mindedness. But we chose not to. And that should be a fireable offense. 
any politician, any civil servant, any Ministry of Health employee, any medical or public health leader, any hospital CEO who calls for a return to a mask mandate should explain the cost of doing so, the risk of doing so, and why it's worth it. That is basic communication. That is basic risk management. Then, after calling for a mask mandate to be reimposed, they should immediately resign in disgrace. They've had almost three years to increase the capacity and the capability and the resilience of our healthcare system. A thousand days. They failed. They simply failed. They need to go. We need somebody new to lead us into a better healthcare system. If we need to go back to masks now, it's evidence of utter, complete failure at every level across the board in Canada's healthcare network. Canada, Canadians, our seniors, our kids, you, me, all of us deserve better. Agree with me? Disagree with me? Let me know. Text me at 71010. You can follow me as well and tweet at me and tell me how brilliant or stupid I am at Tui, T-O-W-H-E-Y. My name is Mark Tui, host today of News Talk Today. I will return in just a moment right here on the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and we will change it up, something a little bit more interesting. Well, maybe. A whole bunch of people got fired this week. Ha, not interesting for them. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Fascinating news out of Quebec. Uh, this just crossed the wire. An RCMP investigations led to the arrest and charges against a uh, man from Candiac, Quebec, 35 years old. He's an employee of Hydro-Quebec, allegedly obtained trade secrets to benefit the People's Republic of China to the detriment of Canada's economic interests. Uh, we'll bring more to you, uh, more of that to you during the news, and uh, there's a press conference uh, coming up. Uh, we will certainly bring you any interesting tidbits that we learn from that after 1 o'clock. We talked uh, last week when you and I spoke about the impact of Chinese espionage activities in Canada. Here's more evidence. Be interesting to see what develops there. I wanted to talk about uh, something else that I've been following, and I'm sure you have seen it in the media as well. The layoffs. We Everybody, I think, in the world knows that uh, Elon Musk now owns Twitter and that he laid off a bunch of employees this week. And, oh, my God, all of us know better than he how to run a $44 billion a company. Although I will confess right here now on the radio that the last time I bought a $44 billion company, I made a few mistakes. I'm man enough to admit it. I'm not perfect. You know, I've made a few mistakes running billion-dollar corporations, so you know, I shouldn't expect much better from him. Uh, but he, Twitter's not alone. Over the last week, Silicon Valley companies, writes the Washington Post, have laid off 20,000 employees. 
This uh, is a continuation and a ramp-up of hiring freezes and job cuts that have been going through the tech industry for months. Twitter, uh, Facebook's uh, parent company Meta, uh, Stripe, the payment platform, a Salesforce, Lyft, and a growing list of companies laid off double-digit percentages of their workers. Rumors that Google and Amazon have instated hiring slowdowns and freezes. New York Times saying that Amazon's planning to lay off 10,000 employees. What the heck is going on in the tech industry? Well, we reached out to the man who wrote this piece for the Washington Post. And Garrett DeVink, tech reporter for The Post, joins us now. Garrett, welcome to News Talk today. Thanks for having me. So what what is driving this? Is there is this just fundamental uncertainty in the economy or are the, the fundamentals of the tech businesses at uh, at fault? What's going on here? What is causing these job losses? Yeah, so, I mean, these companies have just grown massive over the last 10 years. You know, companies like Amazon, Microsoft, you know, Salesforce, even ones that, you know, maybe are smaller compared to those, Lyft. Stripe, they still have thousands of employees, and they've really been at the top of the economy for the last decade. They've been hiring hundreds of people every quarter, sometimes thousands of people. And during the pandemic, we were all spending a lot of time online. We were using more e-commerce to do our shopping. We were, you know, buying more video game consoles, buying more Netflix subscriptions. And so these companies expanded a lot to take advantage of that moment. And now that people are going back to in-person shopping and maybe not spending as much time online and we also have this economic uncertainty that's coming you know is there going to be a recession um you know these companies are saying wow we really hired a lot of people the last couple years if a recession is happening we need to scale back in sort of preparation of that and also that growth that they've been seeing during the pandemic has leveled off or fallen off and so they don't need to grow the same way and so they're like we need to scale back. We need to be a bit more careful with our money because we're not pulling in as much money as we have been over the last 24 months. So it's both a response to what's happened recently post-pandemic as well as sort of an expectation of what is likely to happen if the recession hits as hard as they're forecasting. Are these likely to be temporary job losses? Do you expect to see some of these jobs come back when the economy, uh, you know, if, if the recession isn't as bad as they're expecting? It's a tricky question because, you know, there are still a lot of job openings in tech. If you're, you know, out in Silicon Valley, out in the Bay Area, and, you know, even in Canadian cities where there's been also huge job growth in the tech industry over the last few years, especially in Toronto, you know, there's still openings. If you're a highly skilled tech engineer, you know, you're still doing pretty good. It's not like you're looking for a career change necessarily. But the, you know, compared to compare that to the last three or four years, you know, you would have had a pick of jobs, you would have been able to make, you know, get 10, 20% raises just by switching companies. That era seems to sort of be over for now. And uh, one of the things that I found interesting in your piece, which was in the Washington Post, you pointed out the role of investors. A lot of investors, you know, capitalized on the low interest rates. They could take money invested in new tech startups, especially the, uh, the small ones, uh, with the expectation that they're not going to make money as, you know, in the immediate future, but now that the interest rates have gone up, there's pressure on the investors. They seem to be calling on these companies to accelerate their path to profitability. How big a play is that, or big a factor is that? I mean, it's a huge factor, right? I mean, the way that tech investing has worked now for, for the last decade is, you know, you don't really need to actually be making a profit. You just need to say, I've got a good idea that a lot of people are going to use and we'll figure it out down the way. You know, once we get a, a million people or two million people or 10 million people using our product, then we'll figure out how to actually make money from them. And so a lot of investors were 
investing in companies like that and hoping that, you know, maybe someone else will buy the company for real money or the company will go public and be able to sort of sell itself to other investors or retail investors like you and I who might invest in the stock market. And that's how those original investors are going to get their money back. But now with, with interest rates, if you want to borrow $500 million from the bank to go invest in startups, you know, they're going to charge you six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent interest every single year. And so you're going to want your money back a lot faster to start paying down your debt and paying down your interest. And so now if you start a company in Silicon Valley or anywhere else, you have to tell your investors, look, you know, I want to grow, but also this is how much how I'm going to make money in the first six months. And that's a big change for a lot of people. Wow. And so will some of these, any of these companies, uh, you think, be able to accelerate their path to profitability? Is that part of the, the job cuts there? Or are we expecting, as you just sort of hinted, at to uh, see a whole bunch of uh, consolidations and acquisitions in the next uh, few months? Yeah, I, I think that's likely. I mean, I think the big companies that you mentioned off the, the top of the, the segment there, I mean, they're going to be fine. Amazon's not going anywhere. Google's not going anywhere. Salesforce is not going anywhere. These are still, you know, some of the most powerful and, and, yes, profitable companies in the world. I think a lot of smaller companies who maybe said, okay, I, I need two or three years before I can turn a profit, that's going to be tough, and they might go out of business or they might, you know, sell for cheap to a larger company. So I do think, you know, as you've seen in other downturns, there will likely be, especially if we do have a serious recession where the economy does start to contract by, you know, uh, serious percentages, which we're not sure is going to happen at all. I mean, we should be careful. This is not the dot-com crash. This is not as if the tech industry is going to go over, go away overnight and we're going to need years to build back. We are not yet at that point. But if we do have more of a sustained uh, recession, definitely those smaller companies, there will be some acquisition, there will be mergers, that kind of thing. Only got about a minute left, uh, Garrett DeVink uh, from the Washington Post. But uh, just following on what you suggested there, what if, and I know you're a tech guy, but are there broader lessons here or indicators that we could apply to the the bigger economy from the, you know, is, yeah. is, is tech the canary in the coal mine? Should we be expecting issues to roll out broader? I do think that, you know, like I said, we, you know, people smarter than me don't know whether a recession is coming or not, but it's true that tech companies, they take bigger risks, especially on the startup side, and so they are kind of the first ones to fall when things start to get tight. And so I do think it's an area of the economy that you can look to say, oh, people are starting to be cautious there. Maybe that caution is going to spread to other parts of the economy, too. Well, thank you very much for taking time with us. I really appreciate your insight. I think this is uh, something that we are all kind of trying to read the tea leaves and figure out what happens next in the economy and certainly uh, tech in particular. Anytime. Garrett DeVenk is a tech reporter with the Washington Post, uh, writes about uh, Google and the algorithms that increasingly shape society, and in this case, talking about the layoffs that have rocked the tech sector. Silicon Valley, all of us probably heard about the layoffs at Twitter. Well, I did, because I follow Twitter. But uh, I live on Twitter. You should follow me on Twitter, at TUI, T-O-W-H-E-Y. And, uh, and if you don't, well, my goodness, what is wrong with you? Really, shake your head. I mean, what else have you got to do with the rest of your day that you're not listening to this program? But uh, in any case, uh, I think that's interesting. Lots of pressure on companies to become profitable quicker and investors who got in when the money was cheap now facing a higher cost of capital looking for a way to get out uh, maybe sooner than they had uh, expected. And so that might be driving lots of consolidation or sales, mergers, acquisitions in the tech space. How much of that will bleed over into your company, your job? Well, we'll find out. How fun is your job? 
I've worked at a couple of different places. We'll talk about when we come back. I worked at a place where the motto unofficially was work hard, play hard. And everybody thought that was brilliant. I did not like it. I also worked at a place that I did like, and their motto wasn't work hard, play hard. It was have fun while you work. Much, much better, I'll say. Our Heart Radio Talk Network returns. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. This is Mark Tui. How much fun do you have at work? That is the topic of a new book that basically argues that working should be fun. That companies where they make working fun tend to outperform companies where they don't. I'll tell you my own experience, and I'll ask for your feedback at one 855 When I was in the Army, I was uh, in the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and I started my career in the 3rd Battalion on the West Coast in Workpoint Barracks in Victoria. And the unofficial motto there was, yeah, we can have fun while we work. You know, we made work enjoyable. And, you know, as a result, our uh, our competitors internally within the Canadian Army, there's always strong rivalries between units, kind of called us the Hollywood Battalion or the Beach Ball Battalion, because we, we kind of found a way to enjoy doing what we were doing. Then when I moved to the 2nd Battalion of the PPCLI, their unofficial motto was work hard, play hard. And I thought, well, that's kind of the same thing, but it is not the same thing. What it means is you cannot have fun at work. You must work hard, work harder, work harder, work harder. And then when you were off, you played hard and you drove it. And frankly, they were crazy. They were out of control when it was play hard time. People got hurt in the sports games because they played hard, too hard. I didn't like that. I liked why couldn't we have a laugh while we're working? As long as we're getting the job done and we're great at it and we're doing outstanding work, why can't we enjoy it? That was my preferred working style. What's yours? Do you like work hard, play hard? Or are you on team? Have fun while you work. What's your work experience like that? Or are you not allowed to have fun at any time of the day on the job or off the job? Let me know. 855-633-1010. You can text me as well at 7 uh, 10, 10. The author of this book that poses this, uh, this suggestion, It Pays to Play, is Christy Harold. She spoke to Jim Richards on News Talk tonight, uh, Friday, on why playing at work makes sense. What I've recognized in the last 27 years of having a really fun, playful culture at our own organization, it helps with retention, mm. engagement, physical and mental health, energy, creativity and innovation. And when your team is happier, you're going to have happier customers. I think that makes sense. If I go into a retail environment, if I go into a restaurant or an office or I'm picking up the phone and I'm dealing with somebody who's in a back room, if, if they sound happy, I, I have a much better experience as a customer. I'm much more forgiving and tolerant of, you know, the slight wrinkles that might come up in a business relationship. If they look like they've just been to the dentist... I don't have the same great customer service experience. What's it like where you work? What has been your best experience? Are you like me? Would you rather work in a place where it's, look, during the day, we can still do a great job and have a few laughs? Or 
Are you in an environment, do you like the environment where, no, you're buckled down, nine to five, this is the job, we focus hard, there's no room for fun, we work hard, but then at five o'clock, boy, watch out, we play hard. That's where we let off our steam. one 1010 Let's uh, take a poll of Canadians. Let's go to Mike in Cambridge. Are you on team work hard, play hard, or on team, hey, let's have fun while we're doing this? Let's have fun while we're doing it. Uh, many, as I seen you a screen there many years ago, back in the 80s, I used to work at this uh, place called Mr. Gameway's Ark. It was at Young and Benton, just south of, south of Bloor, and they, had, and they had games and all kinds of stuff there. But up on the top floor was this isolated room where only the staff could go, and when you opened the door, it was decked out exactly like the bridge of the original Enterprise from Star Trek. Oh, wow. I love the, that. Maybe not everybody would. Oh, it, it, all the stations were there, and they had, a, a like, a projection screen where, where the viewing screen was. And sometimes uh, they play, uh, you know, Star Trek stuff and, and movies on it. It was so much fun. Now, could you do that during the work day, or was that sort of set aside for lunchtime and after work yeah, hours? Yeah, it was set aside for lunch, and, and, like, the customers didn't know it was there. It was this little secret room at the top of the store on, on the, I guess, the third or fourth floor. I don't even know if that place is open anymore. It was back in the 80s. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. Let's go to Windsor talk with uh, Joseph. You're on Team Work Hard, Play Hard. Explain. Yes, I am. It was personal opinion, because everything I do, I do, like, 110%. So while I'm at work, I'm working 110%. When I go out, whether it's drinks or whatever, I'm not like to have one or two beers kind of guy. I won't have any if it's that. But I'll have 10 in a night if that's what I'm going to do. And the reason I don't like, I wish I could like to have fun while you work, but where I work now, people take advantage of it. They just, you know, you got the guys that are working and then people are just having fun and only having the fun, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, you know what, it takes a different type of discipline and much more discipline at the individual level where you can, you know where the line is. I know that uh, I can have fun, I can be, you know, we can we can joke around a little bit, but we have to be still performing. Exactly, maybe do a little work, then we'll talk about fantasy football. There you go, thanks you know, very much. Don't start with fantasy football. Thanks, uh, <laughs> Joseph. Let's go to Adam in uh, North York. Uh, are you team work hard, play hard, or team uh, we can bo do both at the same time? Uh, I'm both at the same time because I find that work hard, play hard, the only day they ever work hard is Tuesday. And the rest of the week, play hard means drinking a lot. <laughs> and they're, they're hungover for the rest of the week. And I, used to, I mean, I work in an industry, uh, construction, where that's what that means. Yeah, it's interesting because well, my experience uh, in the military was you know, in the in the third battalion, you were allowed to kind of have a laugh. Uh, you know, when we we buckled down, we got everything done. We were very good at what we did, but we were also, you know, allowed to sort of enjoy ourselves while we did it. In the second battalion, there was none of that. The C the C O at the time was like, no, you this is a serious business. There is no laughter. There is no joking around. You do your job. But when the work is over and you've got time off. It went crazy. People drank too much. It got out of control, the play hard stuff. Yeah, well, see, to me, what's interesting is that, the cult, that when someone says play hard, I'm always surprised that certain segments of the, of the population who come from cultures where drinking is more important than You're talking about my people, the Irish-Canadian uh, immigrants. No, I'm not. I'm not, <laughs> not Northern Europeans. All of them. We're, we're drinking is more important than eating. Fair and enough. So there's, and there's a big cult, culture conflict at work. 
Thanks, Adam. I want to move on to Andrew in London, Ontario. Are you team work hard, play hard, or are you on team sort of, hey, we can do both and have fun while we get it done? We have fun while we get it done. Um, now, that being said, when, you know, uh, we're in the landscape industry, so, you know, if it rains three days, well, we got to work hard, but we, we like to laugh and joke around as long as the work is getting done. I, I think the key thing is, having employees who understand the difference between when it's time to goof around and when it's time to get the job done. Yeah, does that require a leader that makes it clear, or does it require the self-discipline within each employee to understand the difference? I would say it takes a bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, in my experience, i found that the, uh, the weak players weed themselves out when it's time to get the work done, that they, you know, they don't show up and they don't get called back. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Thanks very much uh, for that, Andrew. I appreciate your call. I found the culture change between the two, you know, who both did exactly the same thing, the, exactly the same type of soldiers, soldiers that moved from one unit to the other regularly, but the institutional culture within each organization was so different. And that fascinated me, how an organization can have this unwritten culture code that transcends the leader. The leaders are so uh, prescriptive in terms of how people behave in any organization. Uh, you know, I learned that visiting prisons with the army. And if you'd met the prison warden, you knew exactly what all the prison staff were gonna be like. If the prison warden was buttoned down, no nonsense, got it done, every one of the prison guards was gonna have a pressed shirt, shined shoes, they were gonna show up on time, they are gonna run the place like a Swiss clock. Uh, if the prison warden, as happened in two places, didn't even know we were supposed to be there, didn't know who we were, weren't expecting us, we got the same treatment from all of the staff. They didn't have a clue who they were, where they were going. Uh, but there are cultures that transcend the leaders and stick around. It's fascinating. Anyway, we're going to take a short break uh, here on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We'll come back with News Talk today. And we're going to talk about a brand new artificial intelligence application that is allowing grieving relatives to talk with their dead loved ones. Is that something that you would sign up for? It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. This is Mark Tui. Such a pleasure to talk with you this afternoon. Have you watched the Netflix show Upload? It, uh, it's just, I think it's got two seasons out, the first season. Basically, the gist of it is rich people in a not-so-distant future are able to, before they die, upload all of their memories to a server. And within that server, they live on as themselves, only they can adjust and tweak whatever they want because it's a digital, uh, it's a, it's a digital representation of themselves and they can interact with other people, both dead and existing in the server and through uh, portals with people in the outside world. And of course, you know, mayhem ensues. It's a, it's a dramatic comedy and it's fun to watch. But this is not just the far-fetched stuff of science fiction. On this very show, uh, some weeks ago, we talked about uh, Amazon having a product that Alexa, it's an experimental Alexa feature that allows an artificial intelligence, a machine uh, you know, intelligence, to mimic the voices of your dead relatives. 
In this particular case, in this short clip, uh, a young boy asks Alexa if his grandmother, whose voice and personality has been digitized, can finish reading him a bedtime story. Alexa, can Grandma finish reading me The Wizard of Oz? Okay. But how about my courage? Ask the lion anxiously. You have plenty of courage, I am sure, answered Oz. All you need is confidence in yourself. But it doesn't stop there. And I'm, I'd be interested in taking a, a call or two at one 1010 to find out whether you would sign up for a service like this. In 2020, a Korean documentary team invited a woman on its program uh, to participate in a virtual reality experience. And they filmed it. And this woman had lost her seven-year-old daughter to an incurable disease that was diagnosed and she died within a week. It was so sudden and they were so focused on treatment that she never felt she had a proper goodbye. And so what they were able to do with an artificial intelligence uh, application was to synthesize a three-dimensional virtual reality version of her daughter and the woman put on virtual reality goggles and uh, the little gloves that they wear to give the feedback of, of the feel and she was able to meet her daughter and the, like she speaks of course in, in Korean but she's, she enters this place, it looks like she's in a wonderful field and she's calling for her daughter, where are you? Where are you? And the daughter comes running from around a corner saying, Mother, where have you been? And the interaction between the two brings the mother to tears. And I'm, I'm welling up just remembering it. Here's a little snippet. You can't speak Korean, perhaps, but you can understand the emotion involved. It's incredibly emotional for her, but she says it was somewhat fulfilling. It helped her achieve closure. I'm, you know, skeptical of the idea of closure, but is that something you would want? 855-633-1010. We've got a few minutes before we have to break at the top of the hour. I don't know if I'd want that. It's hard enough saying goodbye. To go back, to me, that would be like reopening the wound. Uh, I don't know that I would like it. But there's a Canadian connection as well. A professor at the Toronto Metropolitan University and uh, a research affiliate with MIT Media Labs has been building a platform called Augmented Eternity that allows someone to create a digital persona from a dead person's photos, text, email, social media posts, public statements, blog entries that will be able to interact with relatives and others. The professor Hossein Rahnama has been working on this, says it will be much easier with millennials and Gen uh, Zers because so much of their life is online. They, they TikTok themselves, they Instagram themselves, they video themselves. So there's so much data available online from which to create this avatar of who they were that it will be much, much easier to simulate them in a virtual reality experience. Again, I don't know that this is something that I would really want. Would you? 
1-855-633-1010. Adam, is this something that you would like go out of your way and pay for if it was affordable? Would you want to talk to a simulacrum of a dead relative? I, I think like probably once because like you'd be so heartbroken and missing them. It's like it's almost like you'd be pulling out a VHS at one point just to hear their voice again. But I, I don't I don't think I would do it more than once because it like some people they, this is going to disconnect them from reality. Like think of if your husband or wife died and you missed them that much, you would just const- you would probably wouldn't even talk to anyone. We just constantly get stuck in this like you know virtual reality with this person which is actually a major plot line in that netflix series upload where yeah. the 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 living woman who's married to her husband becomes so enamored with joining him in the quote-unquote afterlife that she goes to extraordinary lengths uh, uh, that's not that's not really letting go because it, it's going to get so real at some point it's it's going to be weird yeah, I think I could see, but you could see maybe doing it once to sort of make closure or say something that you'd wanted to say maybe or hear something that you would hope to hear, uh, but then maybe park it and not go back. Well, yeah, that would be that would be a tough one because if you pull out like a VHS or something, you're just watching and listening. It's a memory, right? But this thing is talking back to you. <laughs> That's next level. Yeah. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I probably, probably would try it once, to be honest, just, you know. I think a lot of people probably would. Thanks very much, Adam. Uh, I mean, how many people keep uh, a voicemail, the last voice recording, and play? There's a commercial playing on radio stations across Canada where uh, somebody does that. They keep replaying, you know, the last message that was left. They don't want to erase it. Uh, VHS, old home movies, we go back to that to try to get an experience of our loved ones that have passed on. But what if you could talk to them and they would talk back? Would that be something that would be addictive or would it be a bit of, uh, would that just be too freaky? Let's ask uh, Ryan. Is that addictive, something that you would get addicted to or is it something that's just a little creepy? Well, like the previous caller said, and thank you for taking my call, um, I I have seen the movie and I I do remember that subplot about getting stuck in that loop. So I wouldn't want to do it for a person, but I totally do it for my old dog. Oh, interesting, because there's a lot of people who have actually paid money to have their dogs cloned. So you get a you know, living, breathing replica, uh, yeah, but to do it virtually. <laughs> well, that too, and turned yeah. into a uh, what they insist is not Whatever a carpet, but looks like a into. carpet. Thanks very oh, yeah, much. <laughs> hey, I've only got about uh, 15 seconds left. Joanna from uh, Stony Creek, uh, are you a yes or no on this technology? Uh, yes, I would get it from my mom just because my sister passed away unexpectedly last month and none of us got to say goodbye. So it would be, like they said, a little bit of closure. Like she, yeah. it was very sudden. So I would do it for her, for my mom to say goodbye. Thanks very much, Joanna. I can hear the emotion in your voice. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back on News Talk today, we're going to talk with Charles Bremner, a journalist who's covered France for 20 years. He was a friend of the man who lived in the airport at Paris Charles de Gaulle and passed away on the weekend. They made a movie about him called The Terminal. You'll remember that. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hi, welcome back. It's uh, Mark Tui. Such a pleasure to talk with you uh, today. Did you ever see the movie The Terminal with uh, Tom Hanks about a man who, uh, for one reason or another, is stuck, trapped inside an airport? It's not like the airport is closed. 
It's just that he doesn't have the papers to leave. And so he lives an extended lifetime in the terminal building and sort of, uh, you know, gets food where he can, sleeps where he can, showers, uses the bathrooms where he can, the facilities for travelers and, you know, eventually befriending some of the people who work on the uh, airport uh, to let him into areas that probably he shouldn't have access to, uh, but all in an effort because he's a nice guy uh, to allow him to continue living inside a public space that isn't designed for somebody to live in it. Well, that movie was based on the life experience of an actual man. Uh, that man was Meran Karimi Nasseri, uh, known to his friends in Paris as Alfred. Uh, and he lived for 18 years in the Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. He passed away on Saturday from a heart attack. And where did he die? in the airport, Terminal 2F, uh, somewhere around the middle of the day. He wasn't there the whole time, but he arrived there in 1988 after a circuitous uh, journey. He was uh, born in Iran in 1945 uh, while it was uh, under British jurisdiction uh, to an Iranian father, a British mother. He left Iran to study in England in 1974. When he returned, he was imprisoned for protesting against the Shah. He was expelled without a passport from the country, applied for political asylum in several countries in Europe. Uh, no one would take him. French police eventually arrested him, but they couldn't deport him anywhere because he didn't have any official documents. He didn't belong anywhere. He didn't have a passport. He couldn't travel. No one would take him. He ended up at Charles de Gaulle Airport in August of 1988 and stayed until 2006. One man who got to know him is my guest. And joining us now is Charles Bremner, a journalist who has covered France for 20 years. He's the Paris correspondent at The Times. Uh, Charles, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you, Mark. When did you first meet uh, Alfred, I guess, or uh, Mehran Karimi Nasseri? <laughs> well, he, he, was, he liked to be known as uh, Alfred Mehran. He, he, we used to see him passing through the airport. In, the, in those days, there was one main terminal, and that was Terminal 1 at Charles de Gaulle. And he was holding court in the, in the basement, surrounded by all his belongings. He was a, a well-known figure at the airport, and then he became a celebrity, there, was, there were actually about three movies made about him. The, the Spielberg one was the most famous. We, I interviewed him for my newspaper, The Times, in 2001, and uh, used to bump into him in, this, in the, the years after that. Holding court, you describe it. Uh, wh what did he do? <laughs> he was a, 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 a relatified, elegant figure, tall and, and uh, skinny, uh, with moustache and balding, and sat on a red... Uh, fake leather sofa in the in the basement, the shopping area of, of the Terminal 1. He was surrounded, as I had said, by all his bags and his papers, and he would write his diary all day. He would read economics books, and he would give interviews. And his diary was... Uh, did you ever hear what was in it? Was it ever published? Uh... Yes, it was published. It was with a, He published it with a British journalist uh, in about 2006, and it was, it, it, he was, um, as you could imagine, he was not a, a normally balanced person. He, he decided not to leave the airport into, in 1999. So he had, to, he had opted for residence in the airport by that stage. He was uh, a little fanciful, to put it mildly. He, <laughs> was, he didn't have his, his, his feet t entirely on the ground. And, of course, 
doctors at the time, 2006, persuaded him that he needed psychiatric care and left the airport for psychiatric care at that time. I'm talking with Charles Bremner, journalist with The Times, who's been the Paris correspondent for that newspaper for 28 years, and uh, got to know uh, Alfred Mehran, who was the uh, the man who lived in the Charles de Gaulle airport for 18 years. He left in uh, 2006. Uh, did he stay away? He was he he died on the weekend in the airport. Had he gone back to the airport to live, or was he just passing through? Yes, apparently we we didn't know any about anything about this. But uh, the airport staff said he turned up again in September uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, hang around the terminal terminal two F, which I should point out was not even built by the, at the time that he used to live in the airport. And he was, again, uh, became a bit of a figure, but he, he wasn't there all the time. He came in and out, apparently. He didn't ask for anything. He just was uh, kept himself to himself, as he did when he was in Terminal 1. He didn't, he didn't make a nuisance, nuisance of himself. He didn't bother people, didn't ask for money or anything. He just uh, carried on his own little life. I guess it would have been fascinating. I mean, the, the airport there, I've only traveled through there a few times and not in years but certainly the uh, the the experience in an airport in uh, you know 1988 is very much different than it is in modern days and even by 2006 when he left the security would have ramped up significantly would have changed uh, you know what his life was like did that affect him at all not really because he was in the public area of the airport as next to a shopping mall uh, he was it was the basement in the terminal 1 it was not a very salubrious place. It was near the fast food counters, which is where he ate all the time. Uh, helped out, I should say, by um, by um, food vouchers from staff at the airport. He, you know, the security situation didn't bother him. But one thing that has led to a lot of um, uh, fantasy a little bit about him is that he was not allowed to leave the airport. He was allowed to leave the airport. He just chose not to for many years. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, he... he... Without passports or documents, he probably, I mean, he couldn't travel internationally, but he was free to come and go within Paris or within France or the EU, I would imagine. Well, maybe not yes. the EU. Um, yeah. but, what will you remember about him? I remember him as a rather distant, dignified character, very serious, but he had a deadpan sense of humor. Uh, he, I remember him telling me that he would refused to leave the airport unless he could get on a flight to England, which is his main goal. That's why he stayed there all the time. He didn't want to stay in France. And he said, but perhaps I'll take a little flight somewhere else and then come back here. Which <laughs> is, uh, uh, he, he, he had um, what the French call a second-degree sense of humor. That's what gave him a bit of charm, and it's what caused people to write books and movies about him. And um, there, there was even an opera about him in France. <laughs> Uh, and so between 2006, when he left, I guess he was uh, getting uh, psychological treatment. And then uh, recently when he returned, do you know much about where he was and what he was doing? No, this is a bit murky, a bit, uh, it wasn't published very much at all. In fact, he was taken in by Emmaus, which is a charity and shelter for homeless people and troubled people in Paris. He also lived in hotels because he made... Uh, allegedly about $300,000 for the rights to the Spielberg film, his, the rights to his story. Although the Spielberg movie didn't tell his story in the end, it told the story about a fictional mm -hmm. East European played by Tom Hanks. 
But he, he lived in hotels for a while. He burned out his money. Although, there, again, we don't know what to believe, but there are French press reports that said he was carrying thousands and thousands of dollars on him when he was found dead in the airport this weekend. Wow. Uh, Charles Bremer, will there be any service, any commemoration of his life now that uh, Alfred Mehran has uh, passed away? Nothing has been announced. We tried to find out. Uh, the airport authorities are not, are not talking about it. He doesn't have much family. Well, he, did, he does have some family in Iran. Again, it's, uh, his past was murky. He claimed, as you said, to have a British mother, but the papers, none of the official documents showed that. His father was a doctor in was an area of Iran administered by the British in the, in the 1940s, and he claimed that he heard as a child that his mother was a, his real mother was a Scottish woman, although he was registered as being born to an Iranian mother. So his past is, again, a bit of a mystery. Charles Bremner with The Times, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Charles is a journalist, covered France for 20 years for The Times of London. He's their Paris correspondent. Got to know uh, Alfred Mehran, Mehran Karimi Nasiri. He was an Iranian uh, national uh, without papers who lived for 18 years in the Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris. The, uh, the basis of the fictional version of his life story, uh, in the movie The Terminal, that you might have seen, starring Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg. When we come back, we'll get uh, to the bottom of what's going on in Quebec. Quebec Hydro, they've just charged a Chinese spy. From the CTV Toronto Newsroom, this is Breaking News. Hi, welcome back. This is Mark Tui. You're listening to News Talk today. Breaking news out of Quebec just moments ago in a press conference. The RCMP uh, announcing that it has arrested a Hydro-Quebec employee for espionage following a months-long investigation. Here is how the RCMP described it. Today, the RCMP is announcing the arrest of Yusheng Wang, age 35, from Kanziak. Mr. Wang was charged with espionage for obtaining trade secrets in the course of his duties with Hydro-Quebec. This is the first time this charge has been laid in Canada. Uh, Mr. Wang is also facing three charges under the criminal code. It is alleged that he obtained this information to benefit the People's Republic of China to the detriment of Canada's economic interests. While employed by Hydro-Quebec, Mr. Wang allegedly used this position to conduct research for a Chinese university and other Chinese research centers. The RCMP in the press conference also further alleged that he used information without the knowledge of Hydro-Quebec and states that the RCMP began looking into his activities in August of this year following a complaint from the Public Utility Providers Corporate Security Branch. The Integrated National Security Enforcement Team began an investigation in August 2022 in response to a complaint from Hydro-Quebec's Corporate Security Branch. The alleged facts occurred between February 2018 and October 2022. Preventive action and measures were taken by Hydro-Quebec and the RCMP to disrupt the individual's activities. The RCMP in a press conference just moments ago announcing that they have arrested a Quebec resident employee of Hydro-Quebec. 
uh, who is uh, facing several charges under the Security of Information Act and the Criminal Code of Canada, including obtaining trade secrets, unauthorized use of computers, uh, fraud for obtaining trade secrets, and breach of trust by a public officer. Wang was allegedly able to access the information through the course of his duties, according to the RCMP. He's expected to appear in the Longoy Quebec uh, courthouse on Tuesday, where he will be formally charged. This just days after uh, Melanie Jolie, the uh, foreign affairs minister, announced uh, that Canada was going to take a harder line against China, something that critics of the government of Canada have been calling for for some time. Uh, joining us uh, now is our guest, our go-to guy who uh, helps us understand the espionage world as it affects uh, Canada and the threats to Canada from foreign uh, spy agencies. Michelle Junot Katsuya was a former chief of the Asia Pacific desk for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Uh, Michelle, uh, what do you make of this? Hello, Mark. Uh, well, this is a good demonstration of what we've been saying for quite a long time, that there is a lot of spy activities in Canada. It seems that the RCMP has acted very swiftly, quickly. Uh, they've done the right thing as well. And what I want to stress is, is also that they took time to, in our uh, line of work, we call it to sour the milk which is basically to feed the wrong, info, the wrong information before you proceed with the arrest. So whoever was the recipient of the, or the, the receiver of this, this information, they don't know what is good, what is, good, is bad now anymore. I was going to ask you about that because I know there's, uh, just from my readings and having worked around but not in uh, you know, policing and, and intelligence, I know there's a bit of friction sort of... Uh, you know, not necessarily cross purposes, but between the goals of intelligence gathering and the goals of, of law enforcement, uh, oftentimes when you discover somebody who's acting for a foreign power, uh, you know, the intelligence side wants to basically use that person for, you know, its own purposes, whereas, you know, the police, one of the reasons why security service, uh, you know, of the RCMP, the intelligence function was taken away from them years ago, want to kind of just go and bust it up and arrest them. Maybe that's not always the right answer. You seem to suggest that they found a, a way to do a little bit of both. Oh, definitely. You need you need in counterintelligence. That's really, really, really important. Uh, the the if they did not do that with a case in the past uh, from uh, Delille case. Uh, Jeffrey Delille was a Navy officer in uh, in Halifax who, for three years, gave uh, uh, secret information to the Russian. Uh, and and prior to the arrest, they omitted to uh, quote unquote sour the milk. So they kind of. They, they, they kind of sort of gave all the information free to, to the Russians. Here this time, they, 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 they seem to have done exactly what needs to be done to be a good counterintelligence uh, operation. You, own, you watch for a certain period of time, you accumulate the information and the evidence to be capable to present it in court. But prior to the, uh, to the arrest, you make sure that you sour the mill, you, you feed wrong information so they don't know when they started to have wrong information and they have to discard the information uh, entirely. So that is a good countermeasure that needs to be applied. 
So the uh, the RCMP in the press conference just now announcing that they have arrested an employee of Hydro-Quebec on charges of espionage and some criminal charges in addition to that. He was allegedly uh, spying uh, for the government of China. Uh, the RCMP says it began looking into his activities in August of 2022. That's this year. Uh, how active would CSIS have been in this, or would this be purely an RCMP counterintelligence security service operation? And, you know, when does this souring process end and the, the you know, the, would it have just ended with the arrest? It would have ended with the arrest, indeed. Uh, and, and as for the, invo- and the involvement of CSIS, there would be probably a little bit of both, because it definitely touched national security. Our, the CSUS has different technique to investigate as well that could have been complementary. Uh, but at the moment that we intend to go to court, this becomes an RCMP lead investigation. Uh, they take control of the investigation because they need to accumulate uh, the evidence. And let's remember that anybody who sort of contributes will have to testify and, and unfortunately CSUS is very allergic to any court uh, appearance. So, so in that perspective, that would be definitely an RCMP uh, event from the beginning to the end. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a case, when we look at the profile of the case, it reminds us very, very much something that took place in Manitoba, very, very, very similar Two doctors that were working for one of the, uh, for the uh, uh, most uh, 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 high-secure lab in Manitoba, um, they have had access to a lot of information, but they did not realize what was happening before these uh, two doctors had the chance to run back to China. But the, the, the process was exactly the same thing, getting information, publishing even uh, 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 literature and, and, and research project uh, with a foreign, uh, a Chinese entity, a Chinese university or research group. Uh, so basically benefiting from the R&D paid and developed in Canada, but being capable to be used by another country and publishing in, in, uh, with that um, their own name, under their own name. So this time, sees the RCMP had time to intervene and looks like they got their guy. Just about uh, out of time, we got about 30 seconds for you, Michelle. Uh, do you expect there might be other arrests, maybe handlers or expulsions from the uh, Chinese embassy? I would be surprised. I would be surprised because I think that the guy was probably in direct contact with China. It's usually their modus operandi. They they don't need to have somebody from the embassy, but it's possible. It's not impossible. And uh, uh, I hope this time Global Affairs will act accordingly if we do reveal that there was a contact here locally in Canada. Michelle Junot, Katsuya, former chief of the Asia-Pacific desk for uh, Canada's uh, Security and Intelligence Service. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Always a pleasure, Mark. See you. This just uh, breaking news at RCMP press conference uh, this hour. Inspector David Baudouin was uh, telling us that the RCMP has arrested a Hydro-Quebec employee for espionage following a months-long investigation that began in August. Uh, the man, a 35-year-old Hydro-Quebec employee, uh, called uh, Yusheng Wang uh, has been charged with multiple uh, offenses uh, under the Security of Information Act, the Criminal Code, including espionage. The first time that charge has been laid in Canada, CTV News and uh, the iHeart Radio Talk Network, your local uh, news station, will be following this up as more information emerges. Although I expect.
suspect there won't be much more information until this man appears in court, which is scheduled in Quebec uh, for tomorrow. When we come back, migrant right or er, migrant workers want more rights. Should they get them? Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So 100 people are converging on Ottawa today. And no, this is not terrifying our government. In fact, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, a number of members of Justin Trudeau's cabinet and other members of parliament are scheduled to meet with these 100 undocumented migrants from across Canada who are driving, flying, taking chartered buses to Ottawa to uh, take part in a town hall with Canadian politicians. This to advocate for the government's uh, so-called regularization plan that would give uh, them 500,000 undocumented migrants a pathway to permanent Residents, we are reaching out to talk with uh, somebody who's involved in the Migrant Rights Network, but we're having a little bit of trouble getting hold of him. Uh, so, in the meantime, I'd love to talk with you at eight five five six three three ten ten. How do you feel about this? You know, one person says undocumented migrants; another person would say illegal aliens. They're here. They're not supposed to be here. They're going to Ottawa. Uh, the Star talks about this this morning and highlights the one woman who is a, a Filipino woman, has lived in Toronto uh, for 14 years. She came here uh, as an au pair, as a housekeeper, a nanny, and has worked with a family uh, in uh, both Toronto, uh, Montreal, Collingwood. Uh, she was a legal uh, temporary worker here in 2009, but she fell out of status, became illegal in 2013 when her work permit expired. Uh, she could have in that time, now here's the irony, she's 60 years old now, in 2009 as she came here, she could have applied for a permanent resident status, uh, but you know, she didn't have time. And so she fell out of status in 2013. Now she's uh, illegal, she's afraid to go outside, she's afraid to travel. They've organized this trip for 100 of them to go to Ottawa to speak to government about their experiences. Uh, you know, I, I'm of sixes, uh, sixes and sevens on this one. I don't know how sympathetic I am. Uh, for her, she could have applied. She didn't. Now she's living here illegally. I have sympathy for her. She's probably a good person. She's probably exactly the kind of person to make a great a Canadian citizen or at least a permanent resident. But every time I talk with Canadian immigrants who've come here through the arduous and ridiculously paperwork-intensive process that we have, they almost, to a person, argue the opposite, saying, look, I had to jump through all these hoops. They should too. What do you stand? Where do you stand on this? 855 The Star article also talks about uh, another uh, man coming from Edmonton who's been on the authorities' radar uh, since uh, 2017. He's had to report regularly to the Canada Border Services Agency every other Wednesday and twice a week by phone. Uh, Canada's been renewing his work permit yearly but refused to grant him temporary resident status, leaving him in limbo. Uh, depriving him of health care and other government services. I have sympathy for him. Uh, another uh, individual is a person from Bangladesh, 22 years old, came here uh, to study at Lakehead University in 2020. 
uh, his, had to stop his studies when his family could no longer support him. Last year, with his study permit fast expiring, he was able to apply for permanent residence under a special pathway uh, for international graduates and migrant workers who accumulated a certain number of hours. Uh, he's waiting for that application to be processed, but the backlog is so long, he has fallen out of status and was ordered deported. Like, in that case, like, this is our fault. This is not, you know, their fault. But the first one, I don't know. I, I, I'm sympathetic for some, but not all. Is that fair? 855-633-1010. We've now tracked down Farham Rowe of the Migrant Rights Network. Uh, Farham, you're uh, organizing, uh, in part, this... Uh, this town hall in Ottawa, which I think happens today, uh, how's it going and how do you address somebody like me who's sympathetic to some but not all of the circumstances of these half million uh, people living in Canada without status? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. I'm in the room right now with more than 100 undocumented people and migrants who have traveled from across Canada to meet with Immigration Minister Fraser, um, who was here earlier uh, today at 11. Um, and uh, to demand that the Trudeau government delivers on its mandate commitment to ensure that all undocumented people and migrants are regularized and that all migrants are given permanent resident status without exclusion, without caps, and without delay. Um, today, the immigration minister um, and the Liberal government was asked to commit to a transformation of the immigration system to ensure permanent resident status for all and the migrants who, you know, bravely, many of them have active deportation orders, they're risking deportation, loss of loss of work, family separation to have come here. Um, and we expect the minister to uh, deliver on um, Prime Minister Trudeau's promise and uh, meet our demands. I mean, because really, uh, permanent resident status is um, a mechanism to access rights. We have seen clearly through the pandemic that without permanent resident status, uh, you simply cannot walk away from a bad job. Employers uh, will uh, abuse you and you can't speak up because they'll threaten you with deportation. Uh, we heard today from former uh, farm workers who have um, uh, been um, forced to uh, leave because they spoke up about an injury at work. We have you know, former international students who uh, are facing deportation for working too much. Uh, which is a policy that the immigration minister uh, has lifted temporarily and will come into effect tomorrow. I mean, there are so many reasons why undocumented people, um, why uh, migrants have fallen out of status. But the Liberal government has a historic opportunity right now to correct uh, this historic wrong and ensure that there's fairness for all. I mean, you and I, we all want to live in a fair society, and a fair society is one where everybody has equal rights. And but, we need equal status to do that. And a fair society, though, is one that has rules that everybody understands that are reasonable and fair and that people follow them. Farah Amral of the Migrant Rights Network, what do you say to immigrants who have told me personally to my face many times that uh, they followed all the rules, everybody else should as well? And some of these uh, people that you're talking about have followed the rules. The rules were ridiculous and they kind of ran afoul of them through no fault of their own. But others actually broke the rules. We can either, there are, we're at two crossroads, right? We can either have a program and an immigration uh, system that ensures rights for all and can end exploitation, can end the denial of so-called universal services like healthcare in Canada, or we can have a system where only some people uh, have rights 
and the others don't. And that's simply not the society that, you know, the immigration minister himself today has said that he wants to live in. We want to live in a society where everybody has equal rights, whether, you know, uh, you have a, a, a history or a past or not. If you are being abused at work, then you should not. You should be able to speak up if you need health care. But, but um, if you're not supposed to be here working, then shouldn't we just help you go home? People come to the country on study permits, on work permits, and are forced to fall out of status for reasons that are out of their control, right? And so um, it's not really a matter of, um, you know, who gets what, because the cherry picking will continue to uh, replicate a system where some people have rights and some people don't. And that hurts all of us, not only migrants, but it hurts all of us uh, when... There are, there's a group of people who have less rights than others. I'm uh, just about out of time, uh, Faram. I've only got about 60 seconds for your answer, but this uh, must have taken a lot of courage for people to come because clearly some of them might be afraid that they're going to be scooped up by authorities and uh, and deported. Did you did Migrants Right Network have to, they, did you know negotiate a bit of a, a truce in order to allow this to happen, or is there a legitimate fear that people might be apprehended? Undocumented people and migrants are uh, ready. They have courage and unity and have come knowing that there is a risk of uh, deportation, risk of arrest, um, because we know that, um, uh, that this is the right thing to do. And we hope that the uh, Liberal government, who said today that they want to ensure fairness for all, will uh, create a regularization program that, ex- that uh, without exclusion, without caps, and without delay, and ensure permanent resident status for all migrants so that all of us have equal rights. Farron Rowe of the Migrant Rights Network, thanks very much for taking time and explaining this to us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So 100 uh, undocumented workers, illegal aliens, uh, if you will, in Ottawa, having spoken with the Minister of Immigration, that's got to be a hard uh, situation to be in. I mean, you don't want to meet with protesters, you don't want to meet, but you're willing to meet with people who have broken your laws. Not sure where I feel on this. I think most of them would be welcome and great permanent residents and Canadian citizens. When we come back, there has been a secret space plane flying around the Earth for the last 10 years. It came down this weekend. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tuohy. A pleasure to uh, speak with you. If you were driving south uh, near Cape Canaveral, Florida, early Friday morning, 5 a.m. to be exact, well, you might have slammed on your brakes on the highway, as uh, one resident did, going to Twitter saying, holy crap, I'm allowed to say that on the radio, I was driving south almost to the Cape early this morning when I saw I don't know what streaking overhead. A meteor? A UFO? Everyone on the road hit their brakes. Later on, wrote, figured Twitter would know, didn't expect it was going to be the X-37. Sonic booms, dozens of them were heard across south uh, uh, central Florida, and uh, people were woken up, their houses shaking, wondering what the heck had happened. Lots of people thought it had been a meteor strike. Others thought it was a UFO, but it was not. It was a top-secret spacecraft flown by the U.S. Space Force. For real. 
not the comedy one on Netflix, but the real Space Force. The craft is called uh, the X-37B. It's 30 feet long. It looks like a miniature version of the old space shuttle with no windows and no cockpit because it's robotic. It has no crew. And uh, I had heard that they were developing this. I didn't realize it was in operation, so much in operation that it first flew in 2010. It has flown six missions so far, spent, uh, how far has it gone? Some ridiculous amount of billions of miles, 1.3 billion miles on orbit, 3,774 days in space. It landed Sunday at Cape Canaveral after spending 908 days on orbit doing what? Well, it's a military spacecraft, so we're not entirely sure. We know a little bit about it, and here to unveil what we can, my guest is Jesse Rogerson, an expert in astronomy and space exploration from York University. Dr. Rogerson, what was this thing doing up there? Yeah, well, that's a good question. It depends on who you ask. I mean, if you talk to the military, if you talk to Space Force, they're going to say top secret, right? Um, so the, the 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 spacecraft you're talking about, the X-37, this is a military operation. It's run by the Space Force. But even if you, you know, get yourself away from the, the hilarity of the Space Force moniker, um, you, you go back to, you know, before that was a thing, before Space Force was a thing, the, the various sectors of defense in the United States, we're still thinking about and operating in space, like the, um, the Navy, the Air Force, they still had operations in space. Um, the Space Force just sort of pulls it all together under one, under one name now, which is, I think, if you really think about it, makes a lot of sense as we're, as we're transitioning. Anyway, um, the, the Space Force is operating this mission, it's called the X-37, and it's, it's top secret. The military operations involved are top secret. They don't, they're not going to tell you what, it, what it's doing up there. Though, um, it's, it's not, uh, there's some, you know, there's speculation about what this could be and be like, oh, they're spying on other countries and they're doing this. It's unlikely to be those kinds of things. It's more, it's much more likely to be a test bed where they're, as you pointed out, it, it just came back from 908 days in space. So it, it was up there in orbit for like three years, um, orbiting around the planet. And this is a fantastic Since the beginning of pandemic. Hmm. <laughs> now there's a conspiracy theory ready to start. And they're, they're probably testing out military operations. They're, it could be remote sensing. It could be aerial photography or, um, you know, space photography. I mean, there could be a variety of things that they're testing out. They, but it's an experimental craft. So they're, it's about testing out operations in space. Though we do know some interesting things, and that is that the, the military is collaborating with civilian operations, specifically NASA, to, to fly a few experiments that we are allowed to know about. So on that mission, 908 days in space, there was a few, a handful of NASA missions that are public. So, for example, one of the missions was attempting to do a uh, solar energy from space program. And what they do is they collect solar energy in space and then beam it down to Earth using microwaves. And so they were testing this. What idea. could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I think they know what they're doing. And so the idea is like up in space, uh, solar energy is a lot more concentrated. Uh, uh, the atmosphere isn't in the way. So you can get you can gather more energy um, in a shorter amount of time and then you can beam it down to Earth. This is an idea that's been talked about for a while, but you need to test it out. So there's a, a lot going on here. Um, the military side, we don't really know much, but the civilian side, we know a good deal about.
So yeah, that one uh, which fascinated me because I've read uh, reports of the, uh, the the concept of putting solar farms up in orbit, uh, even geosynchronous orbit, so they're always over the same part of the Earth, yeah. and then beaming the energy down so that we can use it through microwaves. But that just terrifies me. I mean, what it if I sound, what if I fly yeah. in between? Am I going to get crispy crittered? <laughs> That's, so no, no. Um, they they would. Uh, you're you're right in worrying about it in the sense that um, microwave sounds dangerous, right? We use microwaves to heat up our food, right? But you know, there's microwave is a very large portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. So you can there's low energy, there's high energy, and you can you can choose your your region specifically. And there's there's ways to do it safely. Uh, but this is it's not a very efficient way to generate energy now because we don't have a lot of infrastructure and space to do something like that. It makes way more sense to do solar panels on the ground than it would be to do solar panels on, in space. But th just like, you know, decades ago, we started experimenting on the ground with solar panels. We need to do experimentations in space if we're ever going to get somewhere. Uh, so that's what they're working on. Um, but my favorite, though, is that there's a NASA, a NASA mission that was on board this X-37 was a... Uh, they brought seeds to space uh, like that you would use to grow food and they just left them up there and for the 908 days and we're and they're going to look at these seeds now that they're back and see what kind of damage if any damage has been done over the 3 years as we as humanity gets to thinking about you know exploring out into space further we're going to end up bringing food that we need to grow as opposed to just launching all the food with us so well, I watched The Martian, eat. though, Jesse Rogerson, so I know you can grow potatoes on Mars. Is this sort of uh, looking <laughs> towards that same goal? That, ex exactly right. You know, we're going to have to grow food. There, that's just period. That's the way it's got to be. If we're going to go to space for sending humans out to space for decades, we're, we need to use the resources that we have. And growing food wherever we go is going to be an important part of that. So understanding what happens to seeds when they're in space for years on end is a really important part, just like you want to understand what happens to humans in space for years on end. So that was a cool part of that mission. Uh, just about out of time, Jesse Rogerson from York University. Are there any other top secret military uh, <laughs> spacecraft that you know about that I don't know? I, I, I only know as much as is, is publicized on the internet. So I, I think I know about as much as you do. <laughs> so, and if you knew more than me, you'd have to kill me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Thanks so much for your time today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Jesse Rogerson's an expert in astronomy and space exploration from York University in Toronto. Uh, this uh, story just blows my mind. A, a, a military spacecraft. I'd heard about them talking about this, but I didn't realize it's been flying since 2010. It's done six missions. The latest one, 908 days in space, 1.3 billion uh, miles, I think. Yeah, miles, not kilometers, uh, in on orbit. And it is back on Earth, and it uh, shocked some people in Florida with some sonic booms and some holy smokes what is that well it turns out it's space force the real one there you go thanks so much for your time this afternoon my name is uh, mark Tui. you can follow me on twitter at Tui t-o-w-h-e-y thanks to samantha pope for producing the program thanks to mark tang for uh working the board but most of all thanks to you for sticking around and listening and uh, interacting with us on the phone lines and the texter machine. We'll be back with another program at, uh, well, you know, same time, same station uh, tomorrow. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.